0: Well, um, we're going to be looking at Psalm 95, so if you could go ahead and turn there with me. If you're going to be using one of the Pew Bibles, you'll find that, I believe, on page uh, 917, Psalm 95. It's just 11 verses. I'll go ahead and read it for us. O come, let us worship and bow down, let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test, and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Well, I don't know if you're someone who um, underlines or highlights in your Bible. Um, when, when I was in high school, I, I used to do that uh, I did a lot of that actually, and I ended up getting colored pencils. Uh, I liked them better than highlighters because they wouldn't bleed through the paper, and they had lots of colors. And as I recall, uh, in my Bible, the Psalms became very colorful as I would go through and I would highlight things that struck me and that I, that I that I that I that I liked, that I enjoyed, that I wanted to to remember. Now I I believe that I got rid of that Bible many years ago, but As I was looking at Psalm 95, I said to myself, boy, I would sure be interested to see what I did with this psalm, because I would bet, I would really bet that verses 1 through 7 would be highly colored, and 8 through 11, there would be nothing there. I would have left it, I believe, totally blank. You know, it it is easy to be drawn to those lovely parts of the scripture, Um, uh, and those things that extol God's greatness, his power and his, his love and his care and his compassion, but we will, we will want to do things that help us remember those parts. But for 40 years, I loathe that generation? I mean, what do you do with that? My hunch is that years ago, I just skipped that part, but today I would, I would like to change that. And I believe that this psalm, is worth revisiting frequently. Um, I was drawn to it for this morning's message, uh, even though uh, we covered it last summer, Aaron, Aaron preached from, from this psalm. And there is a sense of, of importance and recurring urgency that this psalm holds, and I, I guess I'd maybe try to put it this way, it it addresses this huge and vital topic of worship. And worship is something that is important at all times. And it's important for us to get a hold of worship for the, the right reasons. And this psalm is an important reminder of that, and just at that level, it's something that is wise to revisit. Uh, But in addition to that, this psalm is important and urgent because it presents the subject of worship with the word today. So in a way, this is an important psalm to carry in your back pocket as long as it is called today. Today. Now I'm not just making this application up because I'm drawing that from the book of Hebrews, which is much further forward in the Bible in the the New Testament. It spends two chapters, chapters three and four in Hebrews, referring to this Psalm and that this Psalm talks about today and how important that is for us. So it, it, it reminds believers that today is still in effect. And as a matter of fact, it has an even greater meaning for us now than it did then. And so I'm going to try to encourage you to consider that this psalm has something very important to say to us about worship. Now, you might notice that uh, many psalms have at their title a little bit of a, explanation of where it came from. Sometimes it says uh, a psalm by so-and-so, Asaph, and, and so on. And Psalm 95 doesn't uh, have that. Um, and so uh, you would think maybe we don't know who, who wrote it, but the book of Hebrews actually tells us that David did. And so uh, you can find that in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 7 says that David wrote this psalm. And if David wrote this psalm, that means that it was written in a period of of Israelite history long after Moses, long after the people had come into the the promised land. But it was also written before the temple had been built because the temple was built uh, by by Solomon. And uh, so you can get a a bearing on the the time and place that it would have been written. And uh, some scholars speculate uh, not entirely sure here, that it might have been written for like a processional type of purpose. In, in other words, you, you, you see that there's a pretty big difference in the first part of the psalm and the second part. And it's a little bit imaginary, but perhaps people would come into the designated place for worship, and they would be singing the, uh, uh, what is written down for us as verses 1 through 7. And uh, as they would do that, they might enact out the details. So, first they're singing uh, and they're making a joyful noise, but then it gets to the part of bow down, okay, worship, uh, or even uh, lie prostrate, and that graphically the people might have done that. So, they might have actually wa- lived this out in a, in a, in a ceremony, and then, then towards the end, perhaps. A leader would actually call out the words, today, if you hear his voice, all right? And uh, I wasn't there. I, I'm not entirely sure that that's how uh, the this, this psalm was used or not, but what I do know is is that this psalm carries forward into the New Testament by it showing up in the, book of, in the book of Hebrews. And it communicates to me, and what I'm going to try to communicate to you is that this subject Under-address in this psalm is hugely important. Um, I guess I'd put it this way. If God's people get worship right, then they can get a lot of other things right. But if God's people get worship wrong, they might get most other things wrong too. It's that important. So here's what I'm going to be uh, trying to tell you this morning. And uh, it, it is this. We should worship God because we know that He is worthy of all praise. Because He saved His people to worship Him and to keep our hearts from growing hard. Now, each one of these reasons, I believe, is very significant. So let's give this our, our best. Have you ever heard the expression, it's the big E on the I-chart? OK, when, when somebody says that, a public speaker says, this is the big E on the I-chart, they're saying, of all other things, this is one that you ought to get right. You know, the I-chart the kind of has these, these graduated letters, right? And they always, in, that I've ever observed, always has a big E. And they get finer and finer and finer, and at some point, you can't remake them out anymore. Right? But in the, in the world of theology, if we're saying this is a big E on the I chart, it's, it's basically saying, gosh, if you miss this, there's no point in even arguing about the other letters down below. Okay? Uh, this, is, this is a great moment. This is a great significance. If you can't get this, you've got to be. You need uh, eye correction. right? So... This is a way of saying that worship is a very big subject, and I'm going to be using that word in a very big and elevated sense, and I think the psalm justifies that, Um, and worship is kind of a very big subject that you can fit a lot of other words into, Um, so Psalm 95 uses a number of words that are all related to worship. Let's let's, uh, look at a few very quickly here, Um, and so... In verse 1, it calls us into worship by singing. So, let us sing to the Lord. Well, surely that is intended to be an act of worship. Uh, it also says a uh, joyful noise, and that also is going to be uh, a singing, and that is expected to be understood as an act of worship there. Um, but it says other things beyond that. Come into his presence is intended to be an act of worship. And that you're coming in such a way that your presence is accepted in God's presence. Um, in, in a like manner, uh, we have the word worship, at least in my translation in, in verse 6. But it then also says, bow down and kneel before. And those are two very similar concepts. And uh, they, they express visually what is supposed to be one's submission to God in one's life. And so you would bow down or you would kneel before God to express, well, this is what I, I do with my life altogether uh, before God and, and before his word. And so these are all like words that you can fit into this big category of worship. Um, let, me, let me try to give a, a, an illustration of how I think about the word, the term worship. And um, have you ever seen a foam-fitted toolbox? Okay, there are are some of us that uh, maybe have specialty tools, and they're very expensive. You don't want to lose them, and you want to protect them well. And rather than just dump them in any old toolbox, People will take the trouble to line their toolbox or the toolbox drawers with foam and make special cutouts of each and every tool that's supposed to fit in there. And Now, this does several things. Um, And uh, on the one hand, what it does is it helps all your tools stay organized. Um, So you know where they fit. As a matter of fact, you can see if one's missing, it's like, oh, that one belongs right there. You can see it. And so on the one hand, it helps things be organized. But on the other hand... It keeps them safe. So those of us who have these special tools and stuff like that uh, begin to realize that some of the greatest wear and tear on tools is not always in the using of them. It's in the transporting of them. They can get really beat up if they're just rattling around. And that's a reason why people organize them. And it keeps the tools safe. And it keeps them in their proper place. And it keeps them where they're going to be when you need them. And in a sense, what I'm trying to say is that worship is like that. We talked about singing. Well, people sing for many reasons, and they sing unto many different ends. But worship is the toolbox that keeps singing in its proper place, and it keeps it safe. And by so doing, it keeps its people safe as well. Well, people kneel down or bow before many things as well. They, they subject their lives to many ordinances and many governances, many jobs, many other things. There are ways that people kneel. But worship is what helps us kneel rightly for the right reasons and unto the right ends. And so I consider worship to be that foam-fitted toolbox. And when it is properly done, it safeguards and puts to work so many other things. And um, so that's a little bit of the backdrop on the subject of worship. But now we're going to try to follow how this psalm treats worship, how it presents it. And so the the first point that I'm going to be trying to make to you is this. We should worship God because we know he is worthy of all praise. And, and this is a call to focus on the first things first. Big I on the, big E on the I chart. There can be many reasons why people would be attracted to worship. Um, you know, worship can be very encouraging, right? And if we're discouraged, we say, boy, I would, I would, maybe going and worshiping with other believers will help encourage my heart. And that's true. Worship can also be a place where our good friends are. And I want to be with my friends. And that can be a draw of why I would want to go and worship. Uh, Perhaps we enjoy a particular form or a particular style of of worship as well. And I'm not saying that those are bad things. But I am saying this. This psalm reminds us that the fundamental reason to worship God is God himself. And if we miss that, we actually miss worship. There are several ways that this is evident. In, in verses 3 through 5, there are three ways that this is kind of fleshed out. And they would be that, uh, he, well, for, for one, he stands above all other objects of worship. For another, he possesses all things. And then last is that he created all things. And what I'm going to do this morning is quickly go through those in the reverse order. So God is worthy of all praise because he created all things. And uh, so we're going to see that in, in verse 4 here. Uh, sorry, in verse 5. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. And if you, if you study that just a second, you notice that there is a great extreme between, here's the sea, and it's very wet, (laughs) very soggy, and then here's the dry land, and it's emphasized as being dry. And when you have a couplet like that, that is grabbing two antitheses, or two opposites, it is laying a claim on everything that can possibly lie between them. You you see it in the verse before, where it actually says from the the tips of the mountains uh, to the valleys below, and we'll get to that in just a second. And so this isn't just a claim, oh, yeah, God made that and God made that. Who knows about the rest? This is saying God made it all, and that is being presented to God's people as a reason why we worship. And um, so on one hand, by looking at creation, we ought to see the magnitude of God's ability, his creative power, right, his ability to, to fashion The creation and uh, so it's totally fine to go to the Grand Canyon as many people do and say wow look at that this means our God is great and that should be a, a reminder that's who I should worship and I should worship God on the count of his greatness on the on the count of his ability his creative ability Um, But there's more to it than that. As a matter of fact, I I guess I'd venture to say the original audience probably didn't see it in those terms. When when it's brought before them, we should worship God because he created everything, um, it probably would have been a little bit more like, oh, because I exist, I should worship God. I don't have to wait till I see something that knocks me over like the Grand Canyon because I exist as part of his creation, I should worship God. Plus all the fantastic things that you see beyond. So, I'm fine with you going to the Grand Canyon and worshiping there, and I would I do that myself. But I'm also going to say you should worship if you drive through the Mojave Desert. And you say, well, this is boring, but we exist and are the proper response to seeing and understanding, to knowing God created, is worship. And that's why it's called out in verse 5. We worship because the sea is his, for he made it, and and his hands formed the dry land. Now, God is also worthy to be worshiped because he possesses all things. We we see that in in verse 4. In his hand are the depths of the earth. Um, The heights of the mountains are his also. Now this sounds very similar to the the act of creation, but it's it's worded differently and it carries a slightly different meaning. And it says he possesses them. He holds them. He retains them as, as his own. And um, I I, I do think that there's a meaning here that we're likely to miss in in our culture. Uh, We live in a culture that really believes in private property. And I'm going to say, on a human level, that's that's not a bad thing. Uh, And when you believe in private property, you actually believe that no one entity should actually own all the property, right? That's kind of a, a little bit of a fundamental concept there. And because of that, we we actually miss out what it would have been like to have lived in a kingdom. Because in a kingdom, the king had possession of the whole realm. And people's ownership rights existed within that framework already. And because of that, all people who lived within the realm would pay tribute to the king. And it was right that they would do so because the land was his possession. And so this is, this is a way of saying, <laughs> but guess what? Beyond all human kingdoms, God owns from the tips of the mountains to the depths of the valleys and everything in between, and the proper tribute to bring to him on that count is worship. So the proper response to understanding that God created is worship and the proper response to understanding that God has ownership is also worship as well. And and the last point out of these three verses is that God is worthy of all praise because he is above all things that people worship. And we see that um, in verse three, for the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods." Now, you should bear in mind that Israel was called to believe in and only worship one God. The nations around, however, always had a plurality of gods. They'd always have a group of gods. And uh, so each of the gods kind of had a a different form and a different function. uh, a verse like this sets out God in complete supremacy. It sets out with a sort of a special name. The Lord is a great God. Uh, we would say Yahweh is a great God, the King above all gods. And this means, at a fundamental level, God does not compete with any other object of worship. He is King above all. And therefore, he deserves all worship that would otherwise be ascribed to the deities of the nations around. But there's a little bit more here. Those deities that the nations had around were usually erected around um, some sort of uh, natural force of nature that was deified. And so they would actually be the God who stands behind rain, uh, the God who stands behind the sun, Okay, Maybe the God who stands behind the wind and other forces that men depended on in order to survive and to exist. And those deities, supposedly, were behind those forces. And so this is another way of saying God is also greater and beyond all these things that, that sort of seem to govern around men that you cannot control, that men would be tempted to ascribe worship to, and God stands beyond them all. Um, I like the way that a Hebrew commentary put it, it said it this way, God, or Yahweh, is infinitely exalted above everything that is otherwise called God. And and so these things together mean that we should worship God because we know that He is worthy of all praise. But we have more to look at, and so the next major point for today is we should worship God because he saved his people to worship him. We see in, in verse 1, O come, let us sing to the Lord, let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. The, the term rock is usually going to be used to indicate something that is immovable or unchanging, that is, uh, that is fast, that is anchored. You could be secure if you build on. And, uh, and, and so, so it's something solid and completely reliable. And God is called the rock here. Uh, and then in this being the rock, he is the savior Now, salvation means rescue. It means uh, rescue from evil, from danger, from harm. And we see here then that God is not only awesome and great, but that he is involved in his creation in another way. He has done something special, and he has rescued his people. And that also is a call to worship. Now, now, probably when David wrote this, the rock of our salvation, probably he would have been thinking of the Exodus when God had rescued the people from bondage as slaves in Egypt. And they had been there hundreds of years in that condition, and God, in a singular way, had delivered his people in this great story that's called the Exodus, and Moses is the key figure that's there. Uh, but if you're at all familiar, <laughs> with the, the Old Testament stories, God's people needed rescuing over and over and over, right? <laughs> so God had a singular way of saving them, uh, but then he acts as the savior, as the deliverer over and over. Um, and uh, so that, that's, that's, the, that's the way that it went. And it's proper when people realize that God has saved them, that their response is worship. And so uh, there's this story in the Exodus where Pharaoh is chasing them like one last great hurrah, and God rescues the people through the Red Sea. You remember that. And it's a a miraculous uh, story, and Pharaoh's army is annihilated, and the Israelites all along this whole time have never fought a single battle. God has done it all for them. And with the annihilation of Pharaoh's army, their deliverance is complete, And the first thing they do is Moses sings a song in Exodus uh, chapter 15. And so in that song, in verse 2, he says, The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Now, God is going to rescue his people over and over many times, but this is the singular moment of rescue where God actually forms them into a special people, and their very identity is we are the redeemed people. We are the people that God has saved. And Israel carries that identity from that point forward. And that's why I worded this point, we should worship God because he saved his people to worship him. And that act of being saved is also the act... Of being identified as I'm part of the people that now must worship God. So when God rescued Israel, he claimed Israel for his own possession, and this set them apart from all other peoples. So let me try to throw this in a little bit of a biblical uh, historical perspective here. Um, I'm guessing that you're familiar with the story of creation and Adam. And when Adam fell into sin, he was expelled from this garden. And that garden was a garden that would have belonged to God himself. It was set up as if God was a monarch and a king who had his own special privileged garden that he would go walking into the cool of the day, as you see. And Adam's job was like a special servant within that garden. And it meant that Adam was very trusted and it meant that, uh, that Adam's family would so be trusted as well. As a matter of fact, uh, this was sort of common. Uh, you, you heard uh, stories of people saying, you know, I, I have served the king for generations. Well, if you were a servant trusted at that level and if you had children, they would grow up in the capacity of servants as well and servants as well. But when Adam sinned, he was put out of that garden and it was a way of saying Adam you are no longer behaving like my servant. Before, when you were my servant, you could eat of the garden. You could eat out of my bounty and my provision because it was the king's job to provide for his servants. But now, Adam, you're on your own. You will be uh, working by the sweat of your brow. And so there's there's a picture that mankind has actually been pulled away from the identity of God's servants, And man is kind of living on his own, as a matter of fact, is in competition with God, and man wants to control his own life. Man wants to prove his own destiny. Man wants to, all of these things. So he's not God's servant, and he lives just like it. That explains a lot of history. But these things change dramatically when God calls a people to himself, and he did that in the Exodus. He claimed Israel for his own. He redeemed them and he ransomed them and God paid it out of his own pocket. And then he says, now you're mine and you must live like my people. Okay, so in the story of the Exodus then, you have the standoff between Moses and Pharaoh. You know, Pharaoh rubs me the wrong way, but I will have to say this. It doesn't surprise me that he hardens his heart right? Um, Pharaoh believes those people are his people. God says through Moses, let my people go. Pharaoh says, (laughs) why would I let go of my slaves, right? And Pharaoh is being his own man, and he's not being God's servant at all in that story. It doesn't, doesn't surprise you that Pharaoh's response is to harden his heart. As a matter of fact, Pharaoh kind of represents what the heart of man really looks like if only we had that chance. But there is something different. You see, with, this, with Israel having been redeemed, having been rescued, God called them to himself, and because, he gave, because they were his people, he gave them his law. And he says, now you must keep this law. You're not keeping this law to become my people. That's already done. But now you are my people. You need to represent what my people look like, and here is what you must do. Now, our psalm reinforces some of this picture. So Israel is a a distinct nation, and they are supposed to have access to God's presence as a result. And so we see themes reiterated here. And so uh, we notice that in verse 2 it says, come into his presence with thanksgiving. Well, not anyone from any other nation could just say, oh, yeah, I think today I'll go into, into Yahweh's presence. No, you could come only by invitation. And that invitation was extended to Israel. And if other nations actually wanted to convert to becoming part of Israel, that invitation was also there. But the nations around had their own gods that they thought they could go into their presence. And so it was a singular privilege for Israel to be able to come into God's, uh, god's presence. And then f- further down, it says in, in verses 6 and 7, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Uh, let's pause right there. Um, the, 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 the phrase, our maker, we tend to look at that and say, oh, that's our creator, right? God is the one who made us. But probably not, probably in the context that this was written in, they were saying, no, our maker, he's the one who made us as God's people. Okay. That is the the way that the term maker is being. And so the the next uh, verse keeps on flowing with it. For he is our God. Not anyone could just claim that. He is our God, that possessive sense. All right? Um, and, And then we are the people of his pasture. And we have that special intimate relationship where he's our shepherd and we are the sheep of his hand. and. All these things are to try to build the case that when God saved, he was saving a people unto himself, and their proper response is to be to worship God, to return thanks. And that's why I believe that is set out in this psalm. This is a reason why those are calls to worship. We are his people, (laughs) and worship is one of the evidences that that is true. So I guess I'd put it this way, being God's people is a call to worship as God's people. And that's why God gave them, the Israelites, his laws and his statutes. So their lives would be lived out in worship before. We could put it yet another way, worship is evidence that salvation worked. So worship is a proper response to salvation, and it tells the world that the salvation that God provided actually worked, and it created a worshiping people. Look at that. all right? So the nations around could say, I've heard the rumors that all this stuff happened in Egypt, and the people went away. Where's the evidence? (laughs) Oh, there's people. Thousands upon thousands who worship God at this tabernacle. That is the evidence that God's salvation had worked in the exodus. So Israel gets reminded over and over and over again that God saved them. He is their shepherd. They are his sheep. And because of that, they should be the people who worship God. And so we've seen that we should worship God because we know that he is worthy of all praise and because he saved the people to worship him. But this psalm goes further on yet, and I'm glad that it does, but the rest of the psalm does not look like a Hallmark card, does it? It grapples with the deep reality and challenge in life. And I would say in order for us to really worship, we need to grapple with that reality too. And so the third point for this morning is we should worship God to keep our hearts from growing hard. Now, the the psalm changes its tone dramatically. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as at Meribah, when your fathers put me to the test. Uh, You should know that Moses was the one who named that location where where this incident happened. He named him two things: uh, Meribah and Massa. Um, And uh, Massa means testing. And Meribah means quarreling. And reading the Old Testament, it becomes very obvious that the Israelites struggled to believe God, even though they were eyewitnesses of God's amazing power. Doesn't that sometimes get under your skin? Don't you just wish sometimes you could go fix these people? Like you were there, you saw this, you experienced this. In Exodus chapter 15, like I already mentioned, Moses sings this song of exultation and glory to God. But as soon as that song is over, even in the same chapter, trouble starts. And in chapter 17, there is a shortage of water to which this psalm refers. And the people quarrel with Moses. And it says in verse 7 of uh, of Exodus uh, chapter 17, it says, they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Now, my friends, that is not the same thing as saying, I'm thirsty. Instead, it is actually suggesting that God had abandoned them. After all that God had already done, maybe the fact that we're thirsty means that God has left us now. Now, our psalm says that they both tested God and put him to the proof. And each of these are ways of sitting in judgment over God. Uh, To test would mean along the lines of to question God's presence or God's integrity or his purpose. And to put to the proof would be to, in a sense, invalidate God's earlier works and to demand more. Like, I need another reason now to trust you, God. And uh, so that's why the word proof is there. I want proof of this, God. Um, And to do this doesn't sound like worship, does it? I guess I would say it sounds like the opposite of worship. And it's probably even worse than our initial thought. You see, this kind of behavior is actually maligning of God's own character. It suggests that God broke his word. Um, year, or sorry, uh, earlier in the Song of Moses, Moses praised God uh, that he was leading his people in what was called steadfast love. And steadfast love is a love that isn't just um, uh, in a vacuum. It is a love that is tied to a covenant. And tied to a communication of this is what love looks like. And this is how I will care for my people. And God was leading his people with that kind of love. And to say, has God abandoned us? Is to actually say, has God broken his word? Has God left us out here? Even though he promised Abraham and we saw this stuff with Moses. Now, God has given up and it's his fault. And that is actually very maligning. And... Uh, It suggests that God is fickle and that is not steadfast love. And these actions fundamentally then come from a heart that does not believe God. And that's why in verse 8, it explains that they had hardened their hearts. Even though God had done so much for them already, verses 10 and 11 describe these heartbreaking results. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said they are a people who go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. To not enter the rest for them would have meant you will not make it into this promised land. And so during the 40 years, that generation perished in the wilderness. To create loathing in someone is pretty much the opposite of pleasing, isn't it? A pretty extreme opposite. And that's pretty difficult to think about. God's own people had that kind of response. But because of unbelief and disobedience, that generation never entered the the land of promise. But I'm going to say I think it even gets worse than that There's something very troubling about the way that this is worded here. So in verse 8, it faults the people of Israel with hardening their hearts, right? Do not harden your heart as they did. And as you recall, we mentioned earlier, it wasn't very much of a surprise that Pharaoh hardened his heart when he saw God's awesome works. Because Pharaoh wasn't part of God's people. But it is troubling then that Israel did the same thing as Pharaoh, even though they were the people that God had specially loved, and God had specially rescued. And something seems pretty wrong with this picture, doesn't it? I mean, that's why you want to go and just fix these guys, and you can't. As a matter of fact, David is not saying you can go back and fix these people. How can God's own people demonstrate that they have not known my ways as in verse 10? And yet if we're honest, we know that this kind of thing happens over and over in the Old Testament stories, doesn't it? So here's something that is important to bear in mind. I think Aaron brought this out last year. When David wrote this psalm, Psalm 95, he was holding out good news. So, while David's audience couldn't go back and fix that earlier generation, it's clear that God was giving them fresh opportunity to respond properly and to not harden their hearts. Daniel's audience heard the appeal to respond with worship instead, uh, instead of unbelief. And that meant that God, even though all that, was still honoring his promise. And he was still showing his steadfast love to Israel. So we should be thankful that David was holding out good news, but my friends, I will tell you, we should be all the more thankful then that when you study this psalm through Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, Hebrews is actually holding out even better news yet. And so let me try to explain the logic here. Uh, So remember how distressing it was that God's own people struggled with unbelief and disobedience. We see that pattern over and over again because something very important was missing from how that old covenant functioned. God had saved and claimed his people. Because they were his people, God gave them his law. But even in that story, when God gave the law, before Moses came down the mountain from, uh, with the law to the people, they had already broken his law. And this shows something is wrong here, and what it shows is that the Old Covenant did not change hearts. The Old Covenant did not actually take care of the problems of sin and unbelief. And it shouldn't be a surprise then to see that the people under that covenant still evidence sin and still evidence unbelief, and it will crop up instead of worship. Their bodies, true enough, had been saved from slavery in Egypt, but their hearts still belonged with Adam. And what Hebrews does is it points out that Jesus uh, brings in a new and greater covenant in him that has arrived. And this covenant fulfills a prophecy in Jeremiah 31 that says God will make a new covenant that will actually change hearts. The writer of Hebrews realizes that this new covenant is built on better promises than what the Exodus was. Okay? And it is secured by a better mediator than what Moses was. And it foresees an even greater future than what was promised to the children of Israel. So everything that was wrong with that old covenant will actually get set right by the new. And the author of the book of Hebrews can't wait to tell you why. Now, we don't have time to consider it all, but the logic in Hebrews chapter 3 is that Jesus is much, much greater than Moses. If Jesus is better than Moses, then it is all the more important that the people of this new covenant need to respond in belief. You see, if God has changed hearts, then the evidence that those hearts have been changed is that they will respond in belief and they will respond in worship. Greater promises mean that it is all the more important that people not reject those promises. And that's how Psalm 95 carries forward directly into the message of the New Testament. In fact, I guess I'll put it this way. Hebrews makes this case along this, these lines. Because of Jesus, it's still called today, bro. And we can respond in faith and worship. We can enter God's presence. We can avoid the traps of sin and unbelief. And we can enter into God's ultimate rest, his heaven. And so I like the way that one commentary put it. Because of Jesus, the negative tone of the psalm, therefore, is turned inside out. So this is all under that point that we should worship to keep our hearts from growing hard. And I think that is a true reality. I think that worship is designed to keep our hearts from growing hard. But please don't tell me you haven't seen the hearts of others grown hard. And please don't tell me that you've never struggled with that either. And I think that our psalm helps us to better safeguard from that. It shows a few ways that we can safeguard our hearts. So there's a few ways I think it brings out that our hearts are tempted to grow hard. I think it shows us a few ways that worship keeps that from happening. So I'm going to go over those quickly by, or sorry, one way that our hearts are tempted to grow hard is that we might be tempted to trust unbelief more than belief. What, what, what do I mean there? Unbelief wants you to trust doubt instead of God's promises. And doubt always casts something maligning on God's character. And it would have you trust what you do not know rather than what God has revealed about himself. But it's actually tempting because we're finite creatures. We don't know all things, right? And faith in the Bible is taking God at his word and trusting his character, even though well, it might be a thirsty stretch. With this, then, we have to be guarded against an attitude that asks God to prove it. Maybe God has already explained it, and maybe our job is simply to take him at his word. Another way that our hearts can be tempted to grow hard is when we put our hope in our expectations. We carry with us many expectations And those can sometimes tempt us to harden our hearts. You know, I bet that an expectation of the Israelites when they got out of Egypt was that, you know, every step that we get closer to the promised land, life will get easier, right? And instead, when they grew thirsty, their unmet expectations tempted them to harden their hearts against God. We often have expectations. We might expect that life ought to get easier the more that I grow as a Christian, right? And when it doesn't, if our hope was actually in those expectations being met, well, it could be devastating. We might have expectations about others and how they behave how they would respond to us how they would treat us what we would want them to say of us what would they want to, to think of us those expectations be they you know parent to child or one spouse to another spouse friend to friend or even within the church when those expectations become our hope we actually need from people responses for our fulfillment that we should have other uh, and should be receiving from god himself And we saddle others with great great weights that they weren't built to handle. But I believe it's true that our expectations can tempt our hearts to grow hard if our expectations are not met. You know, is it right that God should bear our anger because we put our hope in something else? One last way that I think our hearts can be tempted to grow hard is sometimes we are tempted to trade the object of worship for the experience of worship. We're we're tempted to want to skip to the euphoric moment when Israel's standing on the sea and the Pharaoh's army has just been annihilated and God has shown his power in tremendous ways and we want to stay in that moment forever. But it's pretty clear God did not expect his children to stay in that moment forever. Instead, they were to be fixated on the object of their worship. And when we get those things mixed around, I think the results can also be devastating, and it can cause our hearts to grow hard. We will always be longing for that moment when that person is still right there. But let me turn this the other way, let's finish with there are many ways that worship is designed to keep our hearts from growing hard. One is that worship then, as this Psalm does, constantly reminds us of who God is and who we are in Him. You know, there's something about this Psalm in that, do you think this was new information for anyone in Israel? No, it was not. But do you think it was something they needed to be reminded of over and over? Yes. And worship does that. It recycles God's greatness before our eyes, our hearts, our minds. And it reminds us constantly of who he is and who we are in him. And another way, worship then helps our hearts to rest in God's provision instead of our hearts resting on our worries, which is a very uncomfortable place to be. Furthermore, worship calls us into a community, the community of God's people, the church. There's something greatly to be valued then by worshiping together and encouraging one another in the faith. And this furthermore shows the world that salvation the, that God's salvation worked, because it created a people who worship Him. So worshiping together also helps our hearts to not grow hard. And lastly is this: good worship sees history rightly. You know, it's striking to see how honest Psalm 95 is, isn't it? And to imagine that the king of the land wrote something so unpatriotic as this? (laughs) But it's true. You know, many cultures are tempted to airbrush their historical truth in order to make things look better. And I'm going to tell you that is a way of growing hard against God. Because if you are willing to lie about the past, you will be willing to lie about the present. And this Psalm takes such a matter-of-fact look at history so that you can learn from us lessons, and that helps our hearts to not grow hard. And so I have good news for you, in two weeks we're going to start a history class, a history class on church history, it's not for scholars. It's for people like us, Christians who need to be reminded, who need to understand, and who've been given a shot at doing a better job ourselves if we can. So more on that in the future. So I would say that every day that it is called today is a day to be reminded of Psalm 95, and it's called to worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks that you are the God who created the world who sustains it and who holds it in your power, who fashioned it and placed us in it. And we thank you that you're the God who has saved, saved a people to return worship to you. Help us to grow into that calling and keep our hearts from growing cold and growing hard. Help us to encourage one another every day as long as it's today. Help us to take hold of those promises that we can do so and that it glorifies you when we do. Help our worship to be there for the right reasons, and that worship of you would carry us through our individual lives and our lives as a church. To your glory and praise we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.